Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, this is the third Sunday of our four-week series, Pursuing Racial Justice, How the Gospel Confronts America's Original Sin. In this series, we are looking at the problem of racism in our country, and we're asking questions like, what does the gospel have to say about this? And what should Christians do in response to racial injustice? We began our series by looking at how racial justice is rooted in the gospel of Jesus, which gave some insights into why we care about peace and justice issues here at Grantham Church. Because the gospel isn't just about soul change, it's also about societal change. And then last Sunday, we heard Greg Boyd talk about why we don't get to opt out of the pursuit of racial justice and how we need to wake up to the systems that condition us, that we need to begin resisting the spiritual forces of evil that seek to separate and divide us. And Greg shared how Christ has broken down the walls of hostility, as Paul said, and gave us some ideas as to how we can further the multi-ethnic kingdom of God. And friends, I just want to say that I know that this is a heavy topic, and it challenges us on many levels, especially since we're dealing with this in a time of a pandemic and we're not able to meet together. It can seem especially heavy. But I'm so encouraged that you are willing to journey with us as we seek to be a church that embodies the gospel and leads others to the God who looks like Jesus. So I just want to thank you for doing that. And now let me introduce you to today's speaker, Dominique Gillier. Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, he is the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores, uh, which won a 2018 Book of the Year Award for InterVarsity Press and was named Outreach Magazine's 2019 Social Issues Resource of the Year. Dominique also serves as an adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary and is on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association. In 2015, the Huffington Post named him one of the black Christian leaders today who's changing the world. We're honored to have Dominique speak into our series, so please grab your Bible. Something to take notes with would be good. And let's listen and learn from our brother as he talks about broken systems and the people that they hurt. From his own house to yours, uh, please give a warm welcome to Dominique Gilliard. Good morning, Grantham Church. My name is Dominique Gilliard, and I serve as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, which means my job is to serve as a pastoral presence to our over 870 churches in North America, helping them make connections between race, faith, and discipleship. 
this morning. I'm so excited to be able to participate in your peace and social justice series. And we're gonna be talking about broken systems and the people that they hurt. One of the things that I get the privilege of doing here in Chicago uh, in conjunction with North Park Theological Seminary is that I get to uh, work inside of a maximum security prison uh, where the program that I'm a part of offers graduate level courses for incarcerated people. We're the only school in the state of Illinois to offer uh, such educational possibilities. And our program is focused on creating everyday peacemakers in conflict-ridden spaces. So we're actively discipling men who are actively making disciples behind bars. Um, and they are serving as a pastoral presence in one of the most conflict-ridden spaces that exist in our world. And so through this program, I've been able to consistently um, be able to reckon with this question uh, that we're gonna really broach within the sermon today. Uh, there are so many ways in which our broken systems hurt people and disenfranchise people. And we see this in everything from racial disparities that exist within uh, drug sentencing policies to everything from school funding inequities to uh, what we're gonna talk about this morning, which is uh, disparities within our criminal justice system. And so as we really launch into this conversation, conversation about uh, the criminal justice system or the body of Christ has to be fundamentally different because of who and whose we are. So in Romans 5, 8, we're told that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we were nice and neat, uh, polished and put together. It was while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, that Christ intervened on our behalf. Um, the next passage that's really foundational for us in this conversation is Romans 8, 38, where it tells us that nothing we can do can separate us from the love of God. And this is really important because uh, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we sing songs and pray prayers and preach sermons, thanking God that there is nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of our Savior. But when it comes to our brothers and sisters behind bars, if we're really honest with ourselves, many of us question, are there certain sins that are so vile, so grotesque, that could actually separate us from the love of God? Um, one of the things that... Um, has been really helpful for me in really reckoning with this question that the gospel poses to us is being uh, behind bars with brothers who have committed vile offenses. And I've been able to see firsthand the transformative power of the gospel, the way that God still is in the business of transforming Saul's into Paul's, uh, using people who have been discarded, written off, people who the church has said has no value and society says are irredeemable. I've seen the power of the gospel transform these brothers and sisters to co-laborers in the work of the good news. Um, the next passage that's really uh, vital for us is Matthew 25. It tells us that if we are a follower of Jesus, we are supposed to be present with our brothers and sisters behind bars. It has no quantifications. It doesn't say if you're progressive or if you're liberal. It says if you follow Jesus, this is where we're supposed to be present because 
when we are present with our brothers and sisters behind bars, we're not just present with them, but we're present with Jesus himself. Uh, Hebrews 13.3 is another critically important uh, passage for us as we think about this. It says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Uh, we'll get into this a little bit later into the sermon, but right now uh, we are living in a country that has more people incarcerated than any country in the history of the world. Could you imagine the witness of the church, brothers and sisters, if we remembered those in prison as if we were there ourselves? Our witness would be transformative. Our witness would be prophetic. Our witness would be consistent and we would know the magnitude of the systemic brokenness that abounds in our nation. Next passage is uh, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, which commissions us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. This is a clarion call to the body of Christ today. Uh, in this passage, uh, Proverbs 31 initially is a letter from the king's mom to the king, and she is telling him, don't be like these other kings who abdicate their responsibility to do justice, to care for the least of these, to make sure that the courts aren't trampling on the poor. And the reason why she had to say this to her son is because it was normative for kings to disregard their responsibility to ensure justice, particularly for the least of these. And I believe that this passage, uh, while specifically to the king, is a call that echoes out to the broader body of Christ, that we have a responsibility, particularly in our system today, where Brian Stevenson, the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, says that we have a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. It's uh, wealth, not guilt, that informs culpability within our system, Stevenson says. In such a system, we as the body of Christ have a responsibility to live into Proverbs 31, 8, and 9, to make sure that our broken systems are not only disenfranchising, but creating systemic systems of brokenness and poverty and disenfranchisement that keep certain people in, you know, the undercast of society that are disenfranchising entire communities. Uh, the next passage that's really important for us is John 19, because it reminds us that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knows the weight of living under a broken criminal justice system. Our Lord and Savior was falsely uh, incarcerated, convicted, and sentenced to the death penalty. Jesus knows what it's like to live in the midst of systemic brokenness, and he knows the pain that it causes people. All of these passages really are the foundation for the core passage that we're going to press into today, uh, which is Acts 16, verses 16 through 40. Um, in this passage, uh, at its core, it describes a, a system in which police brutality is normative, uh, where the criminal justice system is riddled with ethnic bias and it is more concerned with profiteering than it is with justice. 
Verse 19 of the chapter says, when her owners realized that their hopes of making money were gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They were accused of throwing the whole city into an uproar. So let me paint the picture here. You got these two men who are exploiting this demon-possessed woman. And they're exploiting her economically. The text says that they have gotten really wealthy from their exploitation of this woman. And Paul and Silas are on their way to pray. And they come, they come into contact with these two men and this demon-possessed woman. They liberate the woman from her demon possession. And at that moment, the two men realize that their hopes for making money were gone. So they decide to seize Paul and Silas and they decide to take them to the magistrates to hold them accountable and pay attention to the language when they make the accusation. They say they threw our city into uproar. Now think about this. Why would Paul and Silas liberating one woman from demonic captivity throw her entire city into uproar? Well, you see, what this passage is trying to, this verse is trying to help us see, it wasn't just these two men who were profiteering off of her exploitation, but there were rich and powerful people who were colluding with their exploitation of this woman and their fiscal profitability depended on her exploitation too. And so when we see how these men try to follow up and to make sure that Paul and Silas pay for kind of their dis economic disruption, they take them to the magistrates who are located in the city center. And we'll come back to that um, in a minute, but I wanna press into what's going on with the liberation of this woman. Um, when the slave owners stood before the court and stated their claim against Paul and Silas, they did more than charge them with the economic disruption they named them as the other. Professor Willie Jennings, um, a teacher at Yale Divinity School notes that in declaring that Paul and Silas were Jews, they, the owners performed through their words, the great demonic juxtaposition, the stability of the city, a social world and the people on one side and the problem of the Jew on the other. These men, use this language, this racial ethno-sized language to help the people to realize that these are not people like us. They are not Romans. They are below us. They are Jews. And because of their Jewish identity, we see the criminal justice system declare that they have no chance of achieving justice in their midst. These men unleash the crowds, repress xenophobia, they play on the crowd's fears to trigger bigotry and violence. They use the language of law and order to appease their ethnocentric aggression, exploiting their corrupt criminal justice system. They satisfy their craving for ethnic violence. Scripture says that the crowd joined in the attack on Paul and Silas, which suggests that the citizens were primed to participate in Jewish persecution. Corrupt judges allow Roman citizens to assault Paul and Silas before they actually get a chance to go before them and stand trial. They're stripped naked, brutalized, beaten with billy clubs by law enforcement, 
before a jeering crowd. I have long wondered in this era where police brutality and um, racial profiling and discriminatory sentencing are hallmarks of our criminal justice system, why it is that people have not turned back to the word of God and specifically looked at Acts 16 for wisdom for what we as the people of God are supposed to do when we encounter this type of injustice. Scripture gives us eyes to see and ears to hear that systemic sin is real. It affirms that ethnocentrism, racial bias, economic bias are real things and they thwart justice and they disenfranchise not only individuals but entire communities that are marred in the systemic realities that systemic sin have cultivated across our nation. When we go back to this passage in Acts 16, we see the scripture says, after they had been severely flogged, they were unjustly thrown into prison without even being given a trial. Paul and Silas were publicly humiliated by the criminal justice system, the marketplace, and the city's authorities, collaborating to send a public service announcement that said anyone who disrupts the city's status quo of economic exploitation will endure the same fate. So don't you dare try it. After Paul and Silas endured police brutality, public humiliation, and are incarcerated without a trial, they remain undeterred in their witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They refuse to be silenced by their oppressive governing authorities. Bound in jail, they continue praising God, praying aloud, and singing hymns of resistance, like we saw Dr. Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders do here in the U.S. during the 50s, 60s, and into the early 70s. Paul and Silas prophetically proclaimed the good news until the very foundations of the prison shook and the prison gates flung open. Evil could not imprison the gospel, shackles could not constrain the good news, and the captive's liberation could not be arrested by distorted manifestations of law and order. Verse 35 through 39 brings in an additional layer into this text, a layer that is vitally important for our current context, but it's a layer that we've oftentimes neglected within our biblical interpretation. The text reads, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officials, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly no, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officials reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of conversation in our nation about things like uh, racial privilege, uh, is it real? 
Is it something that's a part of revisionist history? Um, this text makes it crystal clear that privilege is a real thing. The text says that when they realized that they were Roman citizens, they were alarmed, which means that up until this point, all of the systemic injustice, all of the oppression, all of the exploitation that Paul and Silas endured, the criminal justice system and their magistrates were completely comfortable with. They were not bothered by it at all when that type of exploitation and injustice was happening to the other, the Jew, the inferior in society. But when they realized that they were exploiting one of their own, a person of privilege, a person of social standing in society, that's when they got alarmed. That's when they realized that what they had done was not going to be okay, not only in their own eyes, but the eyes of the nation. Paul and Silas prophetically demonstrated that privilege is something Christians are called to steward, not exploit for selfish gain. Privilege then becomes a revolutionary tool which those who possess it are commissioned to leverage in order to hold corrupt systems and structures accountable and forge systemic transformation that they know those without the same privileges, access, and social currency are unable to wield. Privilege, therefore, should not immobilize those who possess it, but should embolden them to consider how they can subversively leverage it for righteousness sake. Since Paul and Silas knew that they were bludgeoned, denied a trial, and unjustly imprisoned because they were accused of being Jews, they also understood that they could have ended their oppression at any point by simply declaring that they were Roman citizens. However, rather than exploiting their privilege to avoid suffering, Paul and Silas choose to endure persecution as foreigners in their hometown. They suffered in solidarity with the oppressed to expose the systemic sin the Roman criminal justice system was mired in. Paul and Silas thereby embodied the Christ hymn of Philippians 2 by choosing to suffer in solidarity with those who did not have Roman citizenship, taking on the oppression that their non-Roman neighbors were subjected to on a daily basis within Rome's courts. Paul and Silas did this not because they created the problem, but because they understood that non-Roman citizens, particularly Jews, lacked the power and influence in Rome that was needed to unmask, overturn, and transform an oppressive judicial system. This, they knew, was heavy lifting that only insiders, Romans, people of privilege could do. Subsequently, they own the responsibility of addressing the cancerous effects of privilege, even though they did not create the problem. All too often, when we talk about racial privilege in our nation today, people just brush it off and say, I had nothing to do with it. I never owned slaves. I wasn't complicit with the genocide of indigenous people. I didn't participate in the Chinese Exclusionary Act or the Japanese internment camps. Those are things that I had no part in. So for you to ask me to play a role in actually rectifying the legacy of systemic sin and injustice in our nation, that's something that I'm not called to do. But in this passage, we clearly see that disciples of Jesus 
don't have the option to brush her off, brush away systemic sin, especially when you continue to live in a system that continues to privilege you in the midst of what we are trying to navigate together as the body of Christ and as a nation. We are called to be a transformative presence in the world. And the way that we do that is calling ourselves, our community, and our nation to reckon with its legacy of systemic sin and injustice. And it is only when we realize that we, as followers of Jesus, are commissioned to a countercultural way of living, a way of living that does not allow us to embrace these trite responses to systemic sin, but calls us to a deeper manifestation of what it means to find our identity in Christ, to truly die to self so it is Christ that lives in and through us and bears witness to a world that desperately needs to know that there is another way. So Paul and Silas refused to walk away and consider their hands clean just because they were not the ones who created the bias system or enacted judicial oppression. They knew that these individualistic approaches were not aligned to the cruciform ethic of Jesus Christ. So this passage becomes profoundly constructive for us in regards to what is the role of the privileged Christian in the midst of a land littered with injustice. This passage has implications for us in regards to how we think about racism. It has implications for us in regards to how do we think about fiscal stewardship. It has implications for us about how we think about deconstructing corrupt systemic uh, institutions and reconstructing them in a way that bears witness to the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ. So as we turn to start to think about our own criminal justice system, uh, I always like to start with giving a definition of mass incarceration. Um, mass incarceration is something that Michelle Alexander popularized through her scholarship in the New Jim Crow. Um, and Brian Stevenson has also helped shine a light on through his book, Just Mercy and the Witness of the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, my book, Rethinking Incarceration, uh, picks up on those legacies and uh, really focuses on what they mean for us as the body of Christ. Um, so Michelle defines mass incarceration as a massive system of racial and social control. She says it is the process by which people are swept into the criminal justice system, branded criminals and felons, locked up for longer periods of time than most other countries in the world who incarcerate people who have been convicted of crimes. And then they are released into a permanent second class status in which they are stripped of basic civil and human rights, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, and access to public benefits. I would also uh, expound on this definition to say that mass incarceration is a sinister system that defaces the image of God on our brothers and sisters who have been locked up and who are being exploited for their labor in what has become a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, when we talk about um, the the collateral consequences of mass incarceration, particularly for brothers and sisters who are trying to re 
enter into society after they've served their time. We need to know that the American Bar Association has identified over 44,000 legal collateral consequences that a person faces today. That's over 44,000 laws that function as stumbling blocks for brothers and sisters who have gone behind bars, served their time, learned from their mistakes, and are earnestly trying to start over. Um, this is one of the reasons why more than 70 million Americans, that's one in three, have an arrest record and therefore have to live under these constraints, uh, these legal constraints that really um, inhibit people's opportunity to start over and to actually truly have another chance after they've served their time. I got involved in this conversation about uh, mass incarceration in 2006. Um, so I'm originally from uh, the metro Atlanta area and I went to school in downtown Atlanta. And um, in 2006, there was this watershed case that really revolutionized my life and really uh, started to help people to understand some of the depths of the brokenness within our criminal justice system. So about uh, five miles away from my campus, there was this community that was stigmatized for drug trafficking. And uh, because of that, law enforcement had deployed some undercover officers into the community to try to discern where the epicenter of drug trafficking was flowing from. Uh, officers conducted a stakeout. Uh, a couple of nights later, one officer said that he had discerned where it came from. He went to a judge and petitioned for something called a no-knock warrant, which is a piece of legislation that allows law enforcement to invade a premise without having to stop, uh, display, uh, show proof that they are law enforcement or to invade, uh, to display their warrant before invading the premise. Uh, the judge uh, issued the no-knock warrant and two nights later, um, that officer and two other officers went to where he said the epicenter of drug trafficking was flying from. And at three o'clock in the morning, they conducted a dramatic entry raid, which is when law enforcement comes in military grade, um, with military grade weapons and armory and they bulldoze a door. They did this at three o'clock in the morning. And when they did that, um, the occupant, the sole occupant of the house thought that someone was trying to break into her house. So she starts to flee the scene and to try to uh, protect herself. Uh, officers think they say that she's trying to flee the scene to actually get away from the drugs within the house and they deployed 38 bullets and fatally strike her uh, five times in her living room. The sole occupant was a 92-year-old grandmother by the name of Katherine Johnston. And as Katherine bled out in her living room, the officers continued to conduct a search and seizure throughout the old house to apprehend all drugs and drug paraphernalia, but the search turned up empty. So the officers come back into the living room where Katherine Johnston is bleeding out and they try to construct a narrative to legitimate what just transpired. Um, unfortunately, they make the tragic choice to plant drugs throughout our house to make it look like it was a botched drug grade and they craft a narrative and stick to that narrative all throughout the court proceedings. The case goes to trial. Those officers continue to stick with that narrative that they composed early that morning um, until they find out that they're caught in their lie. 
And then they confessed to the whole thing. They confessed to killing her without cause. They confessed to planting drugs throughout her house. And the first officer who went to petition for the no-knock warrant to the judge is found to have fabricated evidence that he uh, gave to the judge to get the no-knock warrant that legitimated the whole thing. Uh, when the case goes, when it comes time for a verdict after all of this confession, uh, the three officers are sentenced from a range of five to 10 years, which is a fraction of the time that this 92-year-old grandmother would have gotten if she actually had been involved in uh, drug distribution. At that point, I knew that there was something critically wrong with our criminal justice system. And when I went back to school the next day, my professor said that as concerned citizens, we had our ethical responsibility to go advocate for legislative change so that vulnerable people like Katherine Johnston didn't continue to be preyed upon like this and that vulnerable communities weren't systemically exploited in the way that hers was. And I said, yes, that feels right, that feels good, that feels true. But then on Sunday, when I went to my church, which instead of being five miles away from where this happened, it was 10 miles from where it happened, the church had absolutely nothing to say about it. And I said at that moment, if there's anything that's compelling me to fight for the dignity of the vulnerable and the least of these, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ and not just my academic institution. So that sent me um, down this road where I really pressed into the word of God and I really looked to see what God had to say about this nature of violence and systemic sin and the people who were being decimated by it. And I realized that scripture actually had a lot to say. It was just that I hadn't been discipled in a manner that had helped me to realize God's presence with the least of these and God's uh, work on behalf of the disenfranchised. And so it sent me into studying our criminal justice system and the role of the church in actually advocating for a system that restores dignity and actually breeds authentic opportunities for reconciliation and restoration and transformation as brothers and sisters serve their time and try to reintegrate into society. So Right now, we're going to do a kind of broad overview of our system, and then we'll land with a couple of scriptures, commissions to really be engaged. So right now, uh, there are more jails, prisons, and detention centers in our nation than there are college granting institutions, I mean, degree granting institutions, colleges, and let me say that again in another way. There are literally more places in the U.S. where you can get locked up than you can get a college degree. That's never happened anywhere in the history of the world before. One of the ways we get this conversation wrong is when we talk about um, incarceration, we usually talk about it as if it's just a male-centric reality. But the reality is that the number of women has been increasing at a rate of 50% higher than men in prison since 1980. Right now, one in 14 kids in our nation has at least one parent who has been impacted by the criminal justice system. And that number is only exacerbated by race and poverty. One in eight impoverished children and one in nine black children have at least one parent who's been impacted by the criminal justice system. Uh, the likelihood of somebody serving time behind bars based, race, based off race and gender are as follows. It's one in three for Black men, 
one in six for Latino men, one in 17 for white men. For our sisters, it's one in, out of 18 for black women, one out of 45 for Latinos, and one out of 111 for white women. The racial disparities are undeniable. They are across the board, but it's also an economic reality to what we're talking about. Um, in our nation, we're taught that people are innocent until proven guilty, but with the reality of cash bail, that's just not true anymore. We have people who are serving time behind bars who have never been convicted of a crime, but they are incarcerated because they're too poor to afford their bail. We spend $14 billion annually holding people behind jail cells who have not been convicted of a crime. That's $40 million a day. If you don't know the story of Khalif Browder, I highly encourage you to look up his story because he is the quintessential example of the cost of cash bail and why it's so problematic, why it's so dangerous, uh, particularly for people of color coming from disenfranchised communities. Uh, I also encourage you to look up the Kids for Cash scandal. Uh, it was a case in uh, Pennsylvania, where between 2003 and 2008, there were two judges who were arrested for being in cahoots with a private prison because they were falsely sentencing juveniles to prison and sending them all to one private prison. And for each juvenile they sent to that prison, they got a financial kickback in exchange. One judge, all by himself, Mark Chivarella Jr., had to have 4,000 of his cases overturned because he had been involved in collusion and racketeering to line his own pockets by disregarding the vulnerable and the least of these. In our nation right now, you need to understand the connection between mental health and incarceration. In 44 states plus the District of Columbia, there are more people locked up with severely diagnosed mental health impairments than who are receiving psychiatric treatment in the state's largest hospital. 44 states where this is a reality. So as we um, come to a close, uh, one other thing we need to really reckon with is uh, how many brothers and sisters in our nation who are sentenced to the death penalty who are actually there though they did not commit the crime. Um, in 2018 alone, falsely incarcerated people lost more than 1,600 years of their life behind bars. Many exonerees uh, will never receive any form of compensation or reparations for the time that they was taken from them and lost behind bars. Since 1973, 166 people have been released from death row after evidence of their innocence was uncovered. The Equal Justice Initiative found a shocking rate of error in death penalty sentencing. They found that for every nine people executed by the death penalty in our country, one person has been exonerated. Ryan Stevenson likes to say it this way. Could you imagine that if for every nine planes we sent into the sky, one of them crashed? He said, we would cease to fly. 
but we would cease to fly because we would see ourselves as concerned about these innocent people who were dying in planes. But when we have the same exact rate of error when it comes to our criminal justice system, particularly those sentenced to the most for the most grievous crimes, we lack that empathy and concern we conform to the patterns of this world because we as the body of Christ aren't advocating for people who are suffering because of this broken system. And it's something that we're called to do because the reality of the Bible is that there is no good news without incarcerated people. And I don't just metaphorically mean that, I literally mean it. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, John the Baptist, who was called to pave the way for Jesus. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Peter, to whom Jesus said that would be the corner of his church, the rock on which his church was built. Samson, Hananiah the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, Junia, Andronicus, all incarcerated people. And there's two ways to look at it. You can say, yes, these people were all incarcerated, but they were incarcerated for good causes. They were incarcerating for bearing witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. And yes, that is true. But I think looking at it from that perspective also turns the mirror back on ourselves. And we have to ask if followers of Jesus in the early church understood that following Jesus faithfully meant going out and bearing witness in the world in a way that was so disruptive that the powers that be, that the powers, the principalities, darkness in high places would seek to silence their witness through incarcerating them. Why aren't we discipling people today with such a zealousness for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do we never even contemplate if following Jesus would mean that it would lead us to bear witness in a way that was so disruptive to the status quo, the oppressive status quo that we need to be incarcerated for our faith. These are questions that the faith calls us to ask. At the core of the gospel, one of the questions that we constantly avoid is, is the gospel still good news when it costs me something, when it could cost me everything? These disciples understood that the answer was a resounding yes, but we fail to raise that question before our congregations today all too often. And therefore, much of our witness conforms to the patterns of this world, making us complicit with systemic brokenness. I wanna leave you with this reality that five of the books of the Bible were written in prison. Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, Revelations were all books of the Bible written behind bars. So if God chose so intentionally and specifically to use and speak through incarcerated people then, why do we believe that God ceases to have that same desire today? My brothers and sisters, when we don't go behind bars, we miss out on precious opportunities to experience the presence of God and to walk with our brothers and sisters who desperately need to know that they are not forever defined by the worst thing that they've ever done, that they have a Lord and Savior who still wants to be in relationship with them, and they have a creator that still has a missional purpose for their life. 
We get to be ambassadors of good news to people in broken situations who desperately need hope and a restorative message to lift their spirits, to know that their life still has a purpose. But they also need us to be witnesses who go back out into the world and bear witness to the depravity, to the injustice, to the systemic sin that's so rampant behind bars. We desperately need criminal justice reform. We desperately need advocates with power and privilege who are willing to leverage those things to create a more restorative justice system where brothers and sisters are not exploited for their labor and the image of God is not constantly defaced. All churches, all churches, your church, we all need to be involved in the criminal justice system in at least one of four ways. We need to be involved in the worker prevention. We need to be involved in ministering to the incarcerated. We need to be involved in walking alongside of families with incarcerated loved ones. And we need to be involved in the work of reentry. Paul and Silas bear a prophetic witness that has profound implications for us today. We need to strategically think how do we individually and collectively as a body leverage our privilege to advocate for justice? It was so great to be with you, brothers and sisters. And if you want to hear more tangible about how you do this, please pick up um, Rethinking Incarceration. It will provide a blueprint for what this looks like for the body of Christ. Blessings to you all. Thank you, Dominique. Hey, before we reflect on Dominique's message, our Peace and Social Justice Commission here at Grantham Church uh, want to highlight the second of three projects that we are giving to through our Peace Sunday in-gathering offering this year. Our goal this year is $3,000, and our gifts will be divided up equally among three local ministries, each of which address racial injustice in different ways. We believe that we can support the cause of the oppressed in our area by giving our financial resources to organizations that are making a real difference. Last week I told you about the Young Professionals of Color of Greater Harrisburg, and today we are spotlighting another local group called Wild Heart Ministries. Check out this short promo video and then let's reflect and apply what we've heard today from Dominique. For decades, the community of Allison Hill has been struggling. What was once a thriving community is now plagued by drugs, crime, violence, and extreme poverty. And what began as a simple act of just cleaning the streets around our home has now turned into a citywide movement of hope for a better future. Many have prayed, many have believed, and now many are witnessing this transformation before their very eyes. Over the last three years, the narrative of this community has been challenged as news and media outlets are changing their tune. Why? Because love is transforming this neighborhood. Block by block, the streets are being transformed. The crime rate has been cut in half, Millions of pounds of trash have been removed, and what was once the center of homicide in the city has now been replaced by children laughing and playing in the streets again. Hope is rising in the hill. But there's still more work to be done. The dreams and prayers of many are only just beginning to unfold, and the change that we are championing cannot be accomplished alone. It takes us all. Join the story of Hope in the Hill and become an advocate. This movement requires every church, every business, and every individual to take action today. 
There are four simple ways you can be a part of this historic movement. Pray, share, serve, and give. And by becoming an advocate, you get to directly participate in sustaining this transformational work as hope and love are literally rebuilding a city. Sign up today for just $25 a month and join us as we continue to love the hill together.